0: Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our monitor boat was one as we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story, be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. Jim Thompson's Seder By the time I got out of bed, the day had already started without me. I had forgotten until I gazed out the kitchen window that the car was in for repairs, and I had to be downtown at the Senate office by 9 for the first meeting of a new committee I was supposed to be on. That meant skipping breakfast, yanking my rubber overshoes up over my shoes beneath a slew of muttered oaths and heading out to catch the first of a series of fumy, lumbering public transportation vehicles that would eventually land me downtown 15 minutes late, if I was lucky. My wife said she'd call ahead to let them know I was on my way. I had not been thrilled when the bishop appointed me to the new interchurch Committee on Affordable Housing, or ICA, which people were already using as a proper noun, as in, ICA should be talking to the folks at UPA, by which they meant the UPA, the Urban Planning Association. The committee's heady purpose was to launch a coordinated attack on urban homelessness by building affordable housing units in strategic locations throughout the downtown core. There was seed money from three levels of government, cooperation from other denominations, and several social agencies offering their expertise. So what was I doing there? I didn't have two acronyms to rub together. It wasn't that the cause was unworthy of me, quite the opposite. I felt unworthy of the cause. I am a priest and pastor. I have no expertise in social ministry, and quite frankly, the clergy who do make me nervous. They are so intense about it, so righteously indignant at the state of the world, they only end up making everyone else feel guilty, especially those of us living and ministering in the cushy suburbs. It is my parishioners, after all, who clog the parkways and pollute the air with their single-passenger sedans, who fill the anonymous office towers with their insatiable need for more parking space, more electricity, more gyms and handball courts, who brush past the shopping carts of homeless people while on the way to their power lunches, who then, en masse at the end of the day, turn their backs on the city for their comfortable homes and gardens, leaving the police, the social agencies, and a few ill-attended, underfunded downtown churches to deal with whatever they leave behind. Not that these clergy say this to your face, but they think it. And now I was going to be one of them. Maybe riding public transportation to the meeting today would help, Maybe I should have worn the clergy shirt that's fraying at the collar. In any case, I thought I'd better just keep my mouth shut for a while until I got the lay of the land, or of the street, as the case may be. I pulled my collar up against the midwinter chill as I transferred to a crosstown bus. Across from me sat a disheveled person, perhaps one of the homeless for whom we were meeting today. He was hunched forward, looking down at the floor, his feet spread apart. He took up both seats. His gnarled hands clutched a brown paper sack, the upscale kind with twine loops for handles. From where I sat, the sack seemed to contain nothing but plastic bags, scrunched together and filthy. He wore several layers of clothing, including a top coat that resembled my own, several decades from now and a pair of cast-off loafers, the stitching gone at the toes, wrenched over thick wool socks. I noticed from beneath his frayed pant cuffs, black and shiny with grime, there protruded the unmistakable hems of a pair of blue-striped pajamas. My breathing stopped. I was carried away in a mind movie. A recollection of an event from my early ministry so deeply buried I had not thought of it for probably 20 years. It felt like someone's description of a near-death experience where, bathed in light, the events of one's life flash before them and they feel again all the emotions connected with those events. The reel began to roll from some inner projection booth. I was held captive, powerless to stop it. In the second year of my divinity studies, I had been assigned for my field placement to a large suburban church. It was an old suburb not far from downtown at the edge of the university campus. The houses were brick and stone and inside, graced with the craftsmanship of another era, sculpted plaster moldings, hand-rubbed woodwork, marble entranceways, The rector, Brandon Fuller, was a former insurance company executive who kept watch over his parish in grey flannels and a navy blue blazer, like the commandant of a navy vessel. He liked to run a smooth operation from a safe distance. When new ideas were called for, especially those involving risk of failure, he depended upon his young clergy assistants that's how it fell to me and Charlie, his 28-year-old assistant curate, to run that year's Monday Thursday Seder Supper. The parish had never had a Seder before, but Mr. Fuller was concerned about declining numbers at the Holy Week services, and he wanted to put some life back into the unfolding liturgical drama that built up to Easter. Also, he had just returned from a tour of the Holy Land and was wearing a new appreciation for the Church's Jewish roots, hence a so-called Christian Seder. Charlie and I put our heads together and soon got excited about the possibilities. Jesus, after all, was Jewish, a fact overlooked by most Christians who, in this part of the world, tend to think of him as English, with a rosy complexion and hair that is long but clean, as if he had just stepped out of the shower. Whatever the Last Supper was, whether the Passover or some sort of less formal fellowship meal, Monday Thursday was a great opportunity to point people back to our Jewish heritage, from which the early church had sprung. We decided to make it a worship service in two parts. First, we would meet down in the church hall for the proclamation of the Word, a Seder meal, and a potluck supper. This would provide some new links in our understanding of the Eucharist, which would follow as the second part of the service that would take place up in the church. The evening would be concluded with the dramatic stripping of the altar in preparation for Good Friday. Charlie and I thought it was brilliant. Mr. Fuller himself seemed pleased as we explained it all to him at the staff meeting the next week. It would need lots of publicity, though, he warned, because it was something new. People would be wary, but he thought it sounded just the right notes with which to enter our Easter celebration. We went ahead and planned the whole thing, billing it as a family night and emphasizing the potluck aspect in particular, because at least people would understand that part. We even posted notices in the wider community, thinking it would be a great evangelistic opportunity to attract new members to the church. Our efforts were rewarded when the day came, and people began pouring in at the appointed hour. Fathers in their suits having come straight from the office, mothers with squirming toddlers, seniors in small clutches, but also, as I surveyed the room, a stranger who didn't fit any of these categories. In fact, a street person, someone I had never seen before. Well, damn, we'd put in a lot of work for this event. Mr. Fuller wanted everything to run smoothly. He wouldn't want any trouble. I walked over to the man. His gray hair and beard were long and matted. He wore a frayed sports jacket over a sweater and several bulky layers beneath that. His baggy pants, secured by a piece of twine around his waist, were khaki Army and Navy supplies, and he carried under his arm an old gym bag that was missing its handles. Ah, hello, I said tentatively, more a query than a greeting. Hello, he said. Then, sizing me up and figuring I was bearing some sort of authority, he said, I saw your notice in the paper and thought I'd just come along. It said... He swept his hand before his eyes as if conjuring the words afresh. All welcome. That's what it said. Great, I said. Shit, I thought. His face was deeply lined. But he was not threatening or scary. He said his name was Jim, Jim Thompson, and he produced from a worn-out wallet an employee's card from CN Rail with a picture and a name. The picture could have been of anybody, a clean-shaven, middle-aged man with a glint in his eye. It might even have been of the man standing before me. I was a railway man, he said. Well, thanks for coming, Jim, I said. "'All welcome,' he said again, repainting the vision with his hand. By the time I got to Charlie, he had already taken care of the situation. Mr. Fuller was apprised and would address it at the appropriate time, which turned out to be in his opening remarks. He strode to the centre of the stage and welcomed everyone without using the microphone, his big, resonant voice reaching even the noisy corners of the room. As everyone quietened down, He commended Charlie and me for our good work in preparing this very special event in the life of our parish. He hoped everyone would enjoy the evening. He went on. Because part of the Seder tradition is providing hospitality to the sojourner, the stranger in our midst, Charlie and I looked at one another. Mr. Fuller was particularly pleased to welcome all visitors, and especially a newcomer, an urban traveler, he called him. Who is with us tonight, Mr. Jim Thompson? Welcome to you, sir, Mr. Fuller boomed across the room. Charlie and I smiled at each other, the old smoothie. The tables had been set up end to end in twos at right angles to the walls, but leaving a generous aisle down the middle of the room and also around the periphery. Jim had taken a seat at the far end of one of those tables, along with a few hapless latecomers. When he heard his name, He smiled at everyone and gave a jovial wave. People around him strained to return the smile in his general direction, pulling their children closer to them. The proceedings then began with a Hebrew folk song that I led on the guitar. I got everyone on their feet. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Jerusalem my home, I sang. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Jerusalem shalom. As I launched into the rousing chorus, people began to clap their hands and move slightly from side to side with the music. Each table had been set with the symbolic foods of the Jewish Passover. Charlie explained their significance one by one. The roasted lamb, the harosus, the mixture of fruit, nuts, and honey, the parsley, and the bitter herbs. A bottle of red wine stood on each table, and we were instructed to fill our juice glasses for the toast, filling one additional glass for Elijah. The blessing of the wine recited by Mr. Fuller, his eyes closed, his voice rising and falling with operatic license, was likely the very blessing used by Jesus himself as he sat with his friends at the Last Supper. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, "'who hast chosen us among all peoples for thy service "'and hast made us sharers "'in the blessing of thy holy festivals.'" All toasted and drank. I stole a glance at Jim Thompson. He seemed to be settling in and having himself a wonderful time, toasting and drinking along with his new table family. Then the bread was broken, a large pita, which Mr. Fuller lifted high into the air and tore in one strong action down the middle— Lo, this is the poor bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt, his voice boomed. Let all who are hungry and in want come and celebrate with us. Table groups broke the bread for distribution. Again, I glanced at Jim. He caught my eye with a twinkle that made him look for an instant like a jubilant Santa Claus. He winked at me as he raised a fresh glass of wine, Elijah's probably. I felt a twinge of shame for fearing that he'd upset things. How right, I thought, that Jim was joining us this night. How providential, even. I had not really noticed that element in the Seder as we had prepared it, that it was a sign of hospitality to all who suffer, to all who are on the road because of the restless suffering of God's chosen people. But I didn't have long to ponder this, The program was moving right along, and next, before the potluck was to start, was the hora, which I was to lead. I assumed a place at the center of the room, in front of the serving tables laden with casseroles and deviled eggs, jellied salads, and dinner rolls. I demonstrated the basic steps to this traditional Jewish dance. I had everyone form a large circle around the circumference of the hall. We held hands and rehearsed the dance, two steps to the left, one step back repeat. Charlie put on the tape, and we began moving awkwardly forward, then back, then forward again around the tables, a circle of people joined hand to hand, kicking each other in the shins. The music gathered momentum, and so did we. We were having fun, which was the point, and faces were flushed as people lost their inhibitions and swooped with enthusiasm into each new movement. But as the circle wound its way around the room, I became aware that Jim was not among us. At the far end where a serving counter divided the church hall from the kitchen, Jim was helping himself to the desserts, stuffing cupcakes and squares into his jacket pockets. I was about to go over and stop him, but then corrected myself. No, this is okay, I thought. This is, this is as it should be. Let him be. And we laughed and danced around our table of plenty. Finally, when the dance was done, we all lined up on both sides of the serving table and began filling our plates with food. There was no shortage of anything, a fact not overlooked by Jim, his plate piled high. For this brief time, the sea was parting, and he was one of us, escaping persecution on our way to a land overflowing with milk and honey." Later up in the church, we heard again Jesus' poignant words of institution, Do this in memory of me. We made our communion, the altar was stripped, a veil placed over the cross, and the door of the tabernacle left open to expose its emptiness. We were entering the dark eve of Good Friday, and having received instruction from Mr. Fuller, everyone got up and departed in silence. In the sacristy, afterward, hanging up our vestments, Mr. Fuller thanked Charlie and me again for our efforts. A very fine evening indeed, he said. Now, about this fellow, this Mr. Tompkins, he'll have to leave, of course. Good night, boys. Neither of us had given any thought to Jim Thompson leaving. We just assumed he'd go away like the rest. But Mr. Fuller was right. We found Jim milling about the narthex by the coat racks, he seemed to be fidgeting with his gym bag. Good night, Jim, I said. It was good to have you with us. Oh, it was nice to be here, all right, he said. This is a nice place you got. I don't suppose you'd mind my just staying here for a while. It's pretty cold out there. Sorry, Mr. Thompson, Charlie said, using an affected authority in his voice that didn't quite take. Being tall and lanky with red hair and a round open face, there was nothing remotely authoritative about him. We can't allow that, he said. Why not? Well, there's lots of reasons. Insurance and things like that. What if something went missing? You wouldn't want to take the blame for that, would you? You think I'm going to steal something? No, it's just that you don't want to be held responsible if something did happen. Well, I think I'll just stay here all the same, Jim replied, looking around for a place to settle. He entered a pew and dropped his bag on the seat. I'm sorry, Charlie tried again, but everyone else has left, and you have to go too. Mr. Thompson ignored him. Look, Jim, I said, we don't want to have to call the police. I reached for his elbow to guide him out of the pew and toward the door. He shook me off and sat down. Pulling his bag onto his lap, he began occupying himself with its contents. Charlie and I looked at one another. He tilted his head, raising his eyebrows as if to say, We have no choice we approached him together. Leaning into the pew from the aisle, we reached out to take his arm, but as we did, he pulled his legs up and lay down on the pew, pushing himself away from us as if settling in for the night. Intuitively agreeing upon our next move, we made a grab for his legs. Jim rolled onto his side, reached for the back of the pew and held on. Come on now, Mr. Thompson, Charlie pleaded, holding on to the hem of his pants. We don't want to have to hurt you. I wondered what he meant. Hit him with a hymn book? We pulled again at his legs, but he flipped himself over onto his back, his chin dug deep into his chest, breathing hard through his nose. One hand was wrapped around the back of the pew, the other around the pew in front of him. He was prepared for a struggle. "'Okay, Jim,' I said. "'That's it. You've got to go.' We were still holding on to his legs, so we gave one last desperate pull— But his belt gave way like a wound spring, and his pants slid off into our hands, leaving him in a pair of blue-striped pajama bottoms. Charlie and I were sent flying backwards into the aisle. I don't know which of us was more startled, Charlie or me, but as we sat up and looked at each other, we started to laugh. It just struck us as so absurd, the curate and the divinity student yanking off a man's pants in the house of God. What were we doing? "'we pulled ourselves together and got to our feet. "'Jim Thompson was getting up. "'He wouldn't look at us. "'He retrieved his pants from the aisle "'and pulled them back on, "'securing them once again around his waist "'with the rope belt. "'From his gym bag he produced a wool toque "'and pulled it down over his ears. "'Slowly, deliberately, "'he wrapped his jacket around him, "'tucked his bag under his arm "'and without a word, "'began making his way to the door.' My face straightened as I watched him go. I'm sorry, I whispered. What? The disheveled man sitting across from me on the bus was looking at me. My hand groped for my briefcase. I rose as if still in a dream and made my way to the exit doors. Stepping down from the bus, I stood on the sidewalk for a moment, trying to get my bearings. The bus pulled away, belching its noxious fumes. I began walking, my overshoes splish-splashing through the slush. At first, I didn't know how to feel. That was a powerful memory. I felt the shame of it all over again, so much for our hospitality that night. But then, I realized that my gait was not heavy, it was light. A smile broke across my face. From somewhere across the star fields of time, had I just received a message? Was this my commissioning for the new work I was about to take on? Did I now get a second chance? With Jim Thompson's weathered face before me, my stride lengthened. I saw the Synod office up ahead. Thank you, Lord, I breathed as I reached the door. And thank you, Jim, wherever you are. And when that fog on blows we will be coming home, and when that fog comes close, I wanna hear it. I don't wanna fear it, and I wanna rock your gypsy soul. I've been reading from my book, How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months and then returning to an interview format come the fall when we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late to stop now. It's too late to stop now.